Today's reading is from Revelations 21, verse 22 through chapter 22, verse 5, page 1041 in your Bible. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street. Of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The word of the Lord. We're in part two on a series on purpose, and I'd, I'd like us to sit in this text for some time. Um, it is a glorious and beautiful passage, and I think if you want a sense of what human beings were for and what human life was intended to be, it's, we look at this, this is the climactic vision of what God intended human beings to, how, how, we, how, we, how we are to live, and it's it's a it's an unbelievably wonderful sight, um, and I, I don't know if you see it as wonderful, um, and I I feel this this hard charge to try to make this come to life, and I, I do hope and pray that the Lord will use these words that I have. Especially, it seems kind of appropriate that I have a weakened voice uh, because in I, I do feel weakness more in trying to prepare, uh, present the glory of God um, than I, I, I normally do, I guess, as a preacher. Um, I'm going to talk about desire today. Last week I talked about the glory of God and what it means to somewhat to enjoy the glory of God. And, it's, and in many ways today, I just feel like today is just a continuation of, of last week's message. Um, it's, you, can list, you can reference last week's message and this week's message. It's almost like one long message before we go out um, and enjoy God's creation next week uh, on our picnic service. But I, I particularly want to talk about desire. Um, nobody has to tell you to desire things that are, are wonderful and beautiful. Do I? <laughs> Do I? Uh, you don't have to tell 
um, ladies to run up to a really cute baby and hold this baby and cherish the baby. I mean, nobody has to tell women to do that. Sometimes you have to tell men to do that, but generally you have to, nobody, you, you don't have to tell, because they, they see the glory of, the, of, the, of, this, of this beautiful baby and rejoice. Um, uh, generally you don't have to tell men to jump up and down when you know, their favorite sports star you know, makes a spectacular play on the field. You know? Sometimes you have to tell the women. Right? Um, but at least most of the men who know anything about that sport, you don't have to tell them to desire the glory that they witness. And that's, that's you know, I'm just trying to show you the, the, the desire for that which is worthy and beautiful, which the Bible, the Bible doesn't use words like just beautiful. That's the word we use. The Bible uses a much more powerful word, which we don't even get because, well, because our desires are dim. That's the first thesis I want to get across to you. Our desires are weak and dim. Um, I want to get at this today in three parts. Part one, desires weak and disordered. That's the first part I want to talk about today. Desires weak and disordered. Part two, um, mud pie pleasures um, lit by dim glories. Mud pie pleasures lit by dim glories. And then part three, the glory of God. The glory of God over these temporal attractions in our dim light. That's the way I want to put it. Part three, the glory of God over our temporal attractions within our dim light. Um, Part one, desires weak and disordered. I I want to, so let me take you to this passage. It says here in verse 23, well, verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Um, that's kind of strange language. We, we live in a very secular culture, and our culture is very blind to the fact that all human beings need glory, and whatever is the things that we find most glorious, we worship. And whenever we, we worship something, you know what we do? We build temples to it. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> but because we, in our culture, think that we've kind of outgrown worshiping, which we haven't, uh, we, we don't think we have temples because... We think we've kind of like uh, we, we've we've outlasted religion. We just we we don't call it religion, but we have temples. There's temples all over the place, and in every city, whatever we think is most astounding and incredible, we build temples to it. Right down the street, literally right down the street, there is a temple. It's a temple to football. <laughs> It costs $2 billion, okay? So whatever is glorious, we put our money there. And then, uh, um, and, and then economies, our whole economies are driven by it. And so we have this temple, and then, we, and then a company that sells jeans wants to stick their name on that temple so they can sell more jeans. 
And it's called Levi Stadium, but it really it was a temple built by football. <laughs> okay. Where I live, where I live in Cupertino, um, Cupertino is the home of Apple Computer, and many of you love the glory of this little product called the iPhone. And some of you are going to spend upwards of three hundred and fifty dollars plus on on, on, a, on a watch. You know, I have a watch that cost me thirty dollars. Some of you are going to spend literally ten times that money on a watch produced by a little, you know, a little Apple symbol, and um, and on the temple of our worship house we have a cross. But there have a t there are many of you that love the temple of the Apple symbol. And by the way, it's very it's quite religious. Do you notice that the Apple symbol has a bite out of it, and it's actually it symbolizes the sin of the fall. <laughs> you don't think that was on purpose. <laughs> that the, the, the founders of Apple said, hey, there was a fruit, and once human beings took a bite out of that fruit and chose their own glory, we will have the glory of being geniuses, and let's put Apple. And um, just a couple of miles from my house, the headquarters... I mean, they, they had actually quite a, an astonishingly nice building, but they didn't think that was uh, good enough. So they're going to move their headquarters from one infinite loop drive, or whatever they, they call it, um, to a new headquarters, and really they, they're building a whole new temple. And it's going to be one of the architectural wonders of the world. It costs $5 billion more than the temple to football, $5 billion because Apple is far more profitable than the 49ers. And there's a lot more worshipers of Apple <laughs> than there are of the 49ers. <laughs> and um, there are a lot more people who love the glory of Apple. That's what this passage is talking about. Some of you are going like, I don't get this. What is all this? Oh, all this light stuff in the lamp. Temples... And what lights our life? Whatever is glorious to you is what shines light into your life. That is what drives you. That, and that's what this passage is talking about. There will be a day one day. There will be a glorious city. And all the nations will be lit by God and His glory. Northern Californians love the, especially here in the Bay Area, especially in our town, the glory of Apple, and that's why that temple is being built. And quite literally soon after it's built, people from all around the world will come visit that temple. There'll be, it'll be, it'll be a, like tourist attraction, there'll be tours, I'm sure. And since I live close by, I can go ride my bike over there. And I probably will because there's, it's gonna, they're going to make it beautiful and so forth. But what this passage is saying is there will be a glory from God which will outshine all these other lesser glories by whose light we live now. But according to the scriptures, the light by which we live now will be nothing. It will be so dim that, that in that city, there will, we don't even need a sun. Because the ancient, ancient people thought, what's the greatest light that we know? It was the sun or the moon. And some people literally worship the sun or little the moon, and they built temples to the moon, and they built temples to the sun, especially when this was written. And this was to say, actually there will be a city one day. 
and there'll be nothing detestable. And, and do you notice how today that we build these temples, but actually out of all these glories of the world, lots of detestable things come out of it. I mean, there are people that protest the way Apple abuses their employees in China. <laughs> there are some people who protest the way you know, Apple is, is, it pushes their might around in industry. And, um, and then, of course, there are lots of people who don't like the 49ers because, well, you're a fan of another. And then there's all these greed, and there's the pride. But there'll be one day when the light of the glory of God will be our light, and that will shape our life. And part of what it means to have purpose in life, we were purposed to live unto the glory of God. And His light would shine, and we would, nobody has to tell you us to worship Him. We would see that glory, and it would shine so brightly, we would gladly give, us, give, give our money and our time and spill our energy and, our, and all our gifts unto the beauty of that light. That's what we would do. Just like people, you know, people today buy, buy the 49ers jersey. It costs a lot of money. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm about to buy, like last week, I, I was telling you about the glory of Steph Curry. I'm going to buy his shirt. Nobody made me buy that shirt. If that shirt wasn't cheap. I'm going to buy that shirt and I'm going to wear the glory of Steph Curry, number 30. <laughs> and especially after winning the championship this year, it will shine brighter. That shirt will shine even brighter. Nobody making me do this. It's not a duty. It's my pleasure. <laughs> now I want to read to you something. Our problem is our desires are all set to this dim light of all these lesser glories that we worship. And I want to read to you something that really changed my life. I referenced it, or actually John Piper referenced it in when I quoted from Desiring God last week, or I referenced Desiring God, his book, his most famous book, the first book that made him famous, which I hope that you will all read. But he referenced this little book called The Weight of Glory, and the first chapter is actually a sermon that C.S. Lewis gave and I went and read this when I was a young man. And it was, have any of you guys seen that movie Inception? <laughs> I love that movie Inception. And in that movie, it's kind of, it's a crazy movie where, God, where people go into dreams and they drop a, a, a thought into your dream. And then when you wake up, that thought seems to like change you. It does something weird to you. <laughs> um, C.S. Lewis did gospel Inception on me when I was in my early 20s when I read this. And this seed went into my mind and it lit up and changed the way I looked at the world. I want to read this with you. I like to go this this every now and then. Um, I often, the reason I do this is because my brothers and sisters in church, and especially, and all those people, even, even if you don't believe in Jesus, you think that Christians go to church because, well, you're just supposed to, and that's how it would be a good person. But really, we're really excited about things like football and money and, and, and uh, how good-looking that girl is across the room. Those are the things that we're really excited about and how, what cool clothes we're going to buy and what great foods we're going to eat. Those are the things that really, those are the real glories that give us excitement. But not so. That's not the way the gospel is supposed to do to us. Listen. If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply, 
unselfishness. What's the highest of the virtues? Being unselfish. At least in the early 20th century, that's what people would say. I don't know what people would say today. I don't think they would say that. I don't think they'd say that. But listen to the critique. But if you had asked almost any of the great Christians of old, they would have replied, what's the greatest virtue? Love. You see what has happened? A negative term has been substituted for a positive. And this is of more than philological importance. So I want you to get this. Oftentimes Christians feel that what's important in our life is all the things we're not supposed to do. <laughs> Don't be selfish. Unselfishness. Don't be selfish. Don't get too caught up in all these things in the world. And I don't want you to hear me when I talk about it this way. I just made a critique of Apple. Hey, I own an iPhone 6 Plus 2. I like using it. I just don't worship the te at the temple. I just like the tool. That's, the big, that's a big difference there. But he says, we often think it's unselfish. There's some negative thing. That's what Christians are all obs obsessed about. Some avoid something negative. But this is what he says. He goes on. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with the suggestion, suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others and even ourselves, but of going without them for ourselves. Just of going without good things. We got to just avoid these good things. As if our abstinence and not the, our happiness, our joy was important. I do not think this is part and parcel of the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our cross, crosses in order that we may follow Jesus Christ. But to nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do not it, if, <clears throat> find we, what we, of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to, listen, to our desire. <laughs> desire is the heart of Christianity. You want to understand something about our fundamental purpose? God, the purpose of the human life is to desire the highest to inflame our heart. The purpose of the human life is not fundamentally what you do, but why you do it. And that gets at the question of desire. He goes on to say, if there lurks in most modern men's the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I don't know if people believe that anymore, actually. <laughs> Maybe that's why we're postmodern, right? I submit that this notion has crept in from a philosopher named Immanuel Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Here's what he's saying. Stoics felt like, don't get too high, don't get too low, just be really kind of like these medium-balanced people and don't let get too carried away with their desires. And Immanuel Kant was that way too. Kant was saying, don't get too high, don't get too low. Just do your duty. Just do your duty. 
And you know what C.S. Lewis says? That's, that's in, at least in the early 20th century, everybody felt like that was a good kind of Christian way to live your life. C.S. Lewis just completely just blows that out the window. That's not what the Bible says. And here's what he goes on to say, and here's the part I really want you to capture. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the beach. We are far too easily pleased. Where are your desires? Let me just say this first thing I want to say. Our desires are weak. And they're disordered because the light of the glory that shapes our desires that we're always chasing, oh, that's what I want, oh, that's what I want, oh, that's what I want. The light which shines in, they're lit by, by weak temples. <laughs> by temples in the world which will crumble. I mean, in about 30 years, we're going to destroy Levi Stadium. And in about 30 years, Apple might be gone. Somebody will buy their glorious spaceship headquarters and turn it into their temple. But in 30 years, Apple might be gone. But actually, there will be a glory that we ought to desire. And it's worthy of your desire. And until then, you're just fooling around with mud pies, according to C.S. Lewis. Let me go to part two. Um, I want to ask you in part two, um, mud pies of pleasure, mud pie pleasures. What's your mud pie pleasure that you spend too much time and energy on? Um, that when you're feeling a little low or sad or tired, that's where you go? Hmm? And I want to ask you today, How's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? How's all your mud pie pleasures that you think, well, like, okay, okay. Because if you are honest, like me, you know that these pleasures, they don't, they're not enough. It's like our heart. We fill it with a pleasure, and then it's like throwing it into a black hole. It is like a black hole, isn't it? How's that working out for you? Um, I, I actually gave, a, I, I thought up a little list of how we do it. And about this, some of you like pleasures for its own sake. I assure you, I like Haagen-Dazs because it just tastes really good. <laughs> okay? And it is a better ice cream than other ice creams. It is. It just is. And that's why it is worth $4.75 or whatever the, the stupid amount of money that I pay for it. Okay? I mean, I, you know, when it's on sale, I'm like, ooh, good. I'm definitely, I walk, I, I don't usually do the shopping in our house, but when, when my wife asks me to go pick up something from the supermarket, she knows 
I will always come home, generally. I'll go pick up that thing, and she knows I'll walk down the ice cream aisle, and if Ben and Jerry's is on sale, I'll pick up one of those, and if Haagen-Dazs is on sale, I'll pick up one of those. All these other cheaper ice creams, whatever, because they're not glorious enough. Um, but so you, some of you maybe like the pleasure for its own sake, for its, the goodness inherent. That's great. I, I hope, for instance, for all you married folks, you like making love to your spouse because there's something wonderful and glorious within it. You love your spouse. <laughs> and then you're like, you love your husband. You're like, I want you. I hope you like that. And that's good. But even that's, it, it fills us somewhat. It, it may fill our stomach. And then, it, and then it's not enough. How about some other ways, though? Sometimes we're, we're, we're feeling like this world, this life isn't enough. So then you know what do we do? We look for some joys of some glory, of a pleasure, as an escape from this life itself. Because this life, with these dim temples, what do we do? Well, it doesn't seem like it's enough. So then what do we do? We, we, we use escapes. That's what a lot of men... Ladies, that's what a lot of men are doing when they're watching ESPN. <laughs> they're just trying to escape what they think is the boring dimness of their own life. And so then they're saying, or that's why that we, we put on the Steph Curry shirt, or, or, and then we want, we, we, can't wait, so we want to share in the temple of the glory, of the glory of the light of that glory, when he scores that touchdown. That's, that's what we men are doing. It's an escape right? from what we feel is a dim tedium sometimes, tediousness. And of course, uh, that's what romance novels do. Ladies, you know why a lot of ladies, okay, so I'm not, I'm not a guy, but I've watched ladies do this. You know, you know why ladies, you, you, you shop at certain places? It's an escape. <laughs> you like going to certain stores, and that certain store will buy you a certain item and a certain kind of dress, and that dress will make you feel like I'm living a different kind of life. And make me more of a princess, or make me more of a star. And if I have the hair, <laughs> I remember when Jennifer Anderson got that that layered haircut many years ago, and then all of a sudden you start seeing all these ladies with a layered haircut. You know what she's doing? Jennifer Aniston was the light of the temple of physical beauty, and a lot of these women wanted that, and it was an escape <laughs> by getting that haircut. See? She's the temple, shining a certain light. And all these ladies goes, I want that haircut. See? It's an escape. Not from my own hair, because I want to be a little more beautiful like her. Um, how about some other ones? I like Haagen-Dazs for the way it tastes, but I also use it as a form of avoidance. I use it as a form of avoidance. So sometimes when I'm just wandering through life, and I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling sad. And because I'm a sinful man, even though I'm a professional Christian, supposedly, <laughs> I'm a professional holy man, okay? But actually, I'm feeling sad. And instead of filling myself with the joy of Jesus, let's like, you know, glob like a half a pint of, <laughs> of uh, cookies and cream the best cookies and cream there is, Haagen-Dazs. 
and I can avoid, just avoid my sadness. Um, ladies, I'm going to say this to you. If your man ever sometimes, you ever catch him looking at porn, um, it's, it's wrong. And, of course, it's dirty and it's detestable. But he's doing avoidance. It's not the only thing he's doing. He's doing escape. He's doing avoidance. Maybe he hates himself. And he wants somebody to look at him and say, I want you. And that pleasure, we turn it into a detestable thing. Because, so even our glories and joys of this world, we turned it into detestable things. So I guess, ladies, I guess I'm just asking, maybe there are ways that we all do this. Women do it certain ways and men do it certain ways. We take these glories and joys and pleasures and we use them because we're so craven inside and so empty inside. Um, just a few other, just, and I won't go too much. Some of you, maybe you just like power or feeling better than other people. One of, my, um, one of the, the, the men who really shaped me as a young man was um, my intervarsity. He was basically my pastor, a guy named Mark Pfeiffer Hausman, and he was really good at tennis, apparently, when he was in high school. And he said, I didn't like tennis for tennis because I, I don't really play tennis anymore. The reason I liked tennis when I was in high school was because I liked beating people. It made me feel good about myself. I'm better than you. <laughs> Just jam that ace right down your throat. Some of us, when I was a boy, I, I liked being the smartest kid in class. I liked getting the 100% and the two extra credit points. The teacher would ask the hard question on the test that nobody else can get, and I love getting that. I love getting that answer. I'm like, oh, I got it. Nobody else gonna get this. And then when the teacher would go, Susan got this, and they were like, oh my gosh, he's such a brain. And I would go, yes, I'm better than everybody in this room. <laughs> I'm like, yes. It's disgusting. I look back on that and I'm just like, oh gosh, so pathetic. And um, those are the ways we use glory. Um, how about just one more? Uh, you know, money's not a bad thing. And so you're like, I'm not a greedy person. I don't want lots of money. You don't want lots of money. You just want to be secure. <laughs> and being financially secure in San Jose means a lot of money. <laughs> it's a stupid amount of money to feel financially secure here. And so it makes us all stingy. Makes us stingy. We see poverty on the street and we're like, oh, I can't give you money because I'm financially insecure. That's how we do it too. Um, the glories of all the ways. Some of you, your purpose in life is to become financially secure because I hated being poor when I was a kid. Some of you, you feel that your purpose in life is to be better than other people. Then they'll admire me. 
Some of you, your purpose in life is, is if I just have lots of pleasures. Just, if I make enough money and if I'm successful, then I can enjoy every restaurant, every great, every great vacation. I can receive every, I can just drink in every pleasure in this world. I want to go to like Tahiti. <laughs> That's like Pastor Susang's version of, of Haagen-Dazs, except I, he, he, he just likes $400.75. I want to go on $10,000 vacations. If that's your purpose in life, how's that working out for you? There is a glory of God. And one day it's going to shine into the whole city. And there'll be nothing detestable in the city. and It'll make us beautiful people. It'll make life so beautiful will be happy forever and forever. <laughs> and actually that life can begin now. You don't have to wait till after we died and resurrected because resurrection life starts now. And that is part and parcel of this life. To let the glory of God and the lamp of the Lamb, the light which shines from Jesus, start to shine into our heart now. And we begin to chase that glory. You know, Jesus, he, the reason Jesus had to die was that we take all the glories and the good things of this earth, we want to worship them into temples, and with this we make them detestable. He died so that all the ways that we make, the good things that he made, so he could wash us of all the things that are detestable by his blood. And he would give us of his spirit. And through his spirit, the Holy Spirit himself is the light of the lamp of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. And I'll just close with a story this Friday, I was out of town. I was up there, not far away, up in San Ramon. Um, I was at Presbytery, and Presbytery for, is the gathering of, of, of you know, a pastors at the, beyond the local level. And there's a lot of tedious business that happens at Presbytery. And by, toward the end of the Presbytery meeting, a lot of the, the pastors had, had left. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't know how many we started. We, we started with like 45 guys. Um, um, at the beginning of the meeting, and by the end of the meeting, toward the uh, late in the day, I think we were down about 15. And, uh, you know, Joe was there with me, I was there, and I was sitting there thinking, like, why am I still here? <laughs> and I was thinking, well, uh, I don't really have a good reason to leave, except my fleshly reason, I just don't feel like it. So I'm like, I'll be a good, you know, pastor, and, you know, find, even though I'm, I have to kind of go through the suffering of some of this tediousness, and I'm so glad I stayed. Toward the end, one of the pastors gave a report. There's a lot of reports that happen. And some of these reports are like, oh, gosh, okay? Um, they're boring. But this pastor gave a report, and he's a chaplain. He gave a report about his ministry. Um, his name is Keith. He's a, he's a pastor in my presbytery. If you meet Keith, he's not an impressive-looking man. Probably in his 50s. He's Caucasian. He's kind of balding. Uh, white hair. He's kind of heavy set. 
He talks softly. There's nothing about him from a worldly way. You would go, ooh, shine your glory on me. But he opened his mouth and he started giving. He goes, let me give a report. He's a chaplain in prisons. He goes to a place where we feel like nothing of glory and light shines from that place. But apparently, the glory of God can shine in that place. And so he said, I want to give you a little bit of what it's like. Brothers, I want to report what God is doing through the gospel in prison as we do this ministry of being a chaplain, this humble ministry. And he told of, of, a, of a pastoral work that he had been involved with. He had been called by the guy, there was a, a guy who leads the prison hospice. You guys know what hospice is? That's when people are dying. That's where you go when you have a fatal disease and you're toward the end. So there's a, a chaplain that he knows who called him to meet somebody at a prison hospice. And I, I can't remember, I don't know if I'm getting all the names right. Forget the, the name of the husband, but he was married to somebody, a woman named Donaldo. <laughs> I mean, they were both um, from another country. He was from, I think, Syria. And he was raised in an Assyrian Eastern Orthodox family. And his wife, they were in an arranged marriage, his wife, Donaldo, I think that's the name of the wife, was Egyptian. She grew up Coptic Christian, and that's also Eastern Orthodox. And it feels, it'll feel more, if you've ever been in an Orthodox, it'll feel more Catholic to us who are evangelical Americans. And they're in an arranged marriage, and they came to the United States, and I don't know what the depths of their, their faith was. I mean, Orthodox Christians are Christians, but... There can be a kind of routine and ritual sensibility not unlike the way Catholics are. And sometimes there can be too much culture and not enough Jesus <laughs> in the way they proclaim the gospel. And anyway, they came to the United States, hard scrabble immigrants. Um, they had four children, four daughters. Um, apparently, the husband had anger issues. And one day, in a fit of rage, he, um, he stabbed his wife to death in front, right in front of his daughters. And they ranged at that time in age, from age 5 to 15. He was convicted of murder, and he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. And he'd, been, he'd served at least 20 years of it, and now he was dying in the hospice. And over his time in prison, he had come to a much deeper faith in Jesus. And all those years, you know, the last thing he could remember of his daughters, he hadn't seen his daughters. They were all sent away. I don't know, foster care, I'm not even sure. And the last memory of their father was that he was a monster. And, and as he was dying, his last wish, as he had come to the Lord, and his prayer was that he might just see his daughters again. He didn't believe that they would actually could forgive him, 
and love him, but he just wanted to see them before he died. So he asked this chaplain, Keith, who came, my, my brother in my presbytery, could you track down my daughters and possibly ask them to come visit me before I die? And so Keith did this work. He says, you know, when, when ladies change their name after they get married, it's like sometimes it's really hard to find them, but apparently one of them kept her maiden name. He found her. After your father is dying, he would like to see you. He's come to faith. He, he, can't, he can't really ask you to forgive him, but he would love it if you would forgive him. And she apparently had become a deep Christian, a deep devout Christian, and apparently all the sisters were Christians. She's, she went and contacted her sisters. They were around the country. They agreed to come see their father. They flew in. They came in together. They met Keith. They came to the prison, to hospice together. Keith, before they were about to meet their father, Keith, this pastor, this, this very humble man, he prayed with these, young la these ladies. Well, they're not so young anymore, I guess, 20 years later. They probably range from age 25 to 40 now. And then, before they were about to, he ran off to go meet this broken down murderer turned son of God. Prayed with him. And then they met one by one to see their father. And each one wept. Forgave their father. <laughs> And were reunited. And then a few weeks later, he died. And they all came to the funeral and honored their father. That's the glory of God. Is that worth a year of your life? See, I heard that story and I sat there and said, it's worth giving my life to. That's a pleasure far higher than football or Haagen-Dazs or money or my pride or my name. That's why we were born, to see the glory of God and run to him and live for him. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we would go to your table. We eat all kinds of things. And we want to consume all the lesser glories of this world. And we spend our money and our time stuffing our hearts, trying to fill it with all these smaller pleasures and glories. But now, we pray through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the light of of your glory would go into us and we would go to what we were made for for you um, I'm just a poor weak pastor thank you for my brother Keith thank you for redeeming and glorifying yourself through my brother a former murderer and um Thank you for reuniting him to his daughters and making us a family under Jesus. 
It's so beautiful to me. I know it's only from you. Pray that these kinds of things would go into our hearts and we would know that is our God. That's Jesus. Only the lamp of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, can do this kind of thing. And we would want to see your glory spilled out into our lives, into our city, and into Bishop, wherever we go into Thailand, and we live for you. As we eat of this glory, eat of this bread and this wine, put the, your glory into our hearts and light up our eyes and our lives. In Jesus' name.